Long a fixture in science fiction movies, voice activation technology is quickly becoming commonplace in the real world. The market for smart speakers such as Amazon Echo, Google Home, and the new Apple HomePod is projected to reach $2 billion and 75% of U.S. homes by 2020. Could the same technology that drives those devices prove useful in the classroom? And regardless of its educational potential, how will educators have to respond to a generation of students raised with devices that respond to their questions and commands? I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and joining me today to discuss the potential of voice activation technology in the classroom is Michael Horn. Michael is co-founder of the Clayton Christensen Institute for Disruptive Innovation, an executive editor at EdNext, and the author of the new column, Hey Alexa, Can You Help Kids Learn More?, which appears in the spring 2018 issue of the journal and is available now at educationnext.org. Michael, welcome back to the EdNext podcast. Thanks for having me, Marty. So your column is called What Next? And we expect you to be looking out into the future, but I'll admit when you first pitched the idea of writing on this topic, I was a bit skeptical as to whether there's really anything there in terms of the distinctive educational potential of voice activation technology. What led you to decide that this was worth delving into? Yeah, so I confess I was skeptical as well and, and probably still am a little bit. Uh, but Mike Petrilli, of course, one of our fellow uh, executive editors at Education Next, said, Michael, you should really dig in on this. And I was actually hearing a lot of buzz, uh, Marty, from educators in the field and from uh, folks at companies like Amazon that have Alexa, of course, all off the record in the case of uh, the companies, but saying, yeah, we're, we're actively looking at this space. We think we can do some pretty neat things educationally. Uh, and uh, enough so that I felt like, let's dig in and actually see what this, this vision might even look like. Because from my perspective, it felt just like a, you know, a, a G-bang with technology, but not something that educationally made a lot of sense when I, when I kept thinking about it. And you went out and found some educators who are asking these same questions, one of them a superintendent in New York. Tell me a little bit about why he thinks this is worth thinking about. Yeah, so Ken Eastwood, uh, who actually just retired as a superintendent at the enlarged uh, city school district of Middletown, New York, uh, had a very successful run there, uh, closing the achievement gap in, uh, in, in certain ways uh, for uh, students from different uh, minority backgrounds and low-income backgrounds with, with uh, white students in the district, uh, and he's been a leader in the blended learning world. Uh, somehow I became aware that he was thinking pretty seriously about the potential for voice-activated technologies to totally transform the orchestration, if you will, uh, of the classroom. And so uh, I jumped on the phone with him, and he sketched out this uh, picture for me of you know, we have students who are coming to us right now who've never known a world without voice activation. They're living with devices in their living rooms and kitchens, literally, that they can just pop off a question to in natural language, and these devices can answer them back. And then they come into these classrooms, and they sit there, and uh, they get bored and disengaged as, uh, you know, uh, learning is thrown at them. And they have questions. They want to be able to engage and ask. And they're used to uh, an environment in which they can get immediate answers. And why aren't we harnessing voice activation technology in this way really as a guide uh, to help students ask good questions, uh, to not get stuck on a misconception or uh, get stuck in a rut, if you will, and, and allow 
you know, waiting for the scarce resource of the teacher to answer them, but they can get immediate feedback that helps them keep on progressing with their learning uh, and really combat a lot of the uh, designation of ADHD and uh, other, other designations that show students as having trouble paying attention when, in fact, really what they're used to is a, is a hyper-responsive environment in the, in the traditional classroom is the opposite of it. So basically his assertion was, how do we start exploring these voice-activated uh, technologies uh, in combination with artificial intelligence or some of the advances we're seeing in the digital learning field uh, to create a much more responsive and robust learning environment for all kids? Yeah, and that was the point that was most compelling to me ultimately in the piece that maybe it's essential that educators find new ways to meet students' expectations as those expectations for responsiveness change because of the technological environment they're experiencing elsewhere in their lives. Uh, so as Eastwood thinks about it, as you think about it, what might this look like in concrete terms? Are we thinking about you know, just putting the Amazon Echo in the center of the classroom or um, how, how might this work? Yeah, so what he, you know, what Ken was uh, picturing in his first, he, he gives a couple pictures of what this could look like in the piece. But the first picture he painted uh, was with one where there would be basically a few microphones around the classroom and a few different uh, Alexa, if you will, recording devices that learn to recognize individual student voices. And so students can literally just pipe in and, and uh, Alexa could be capturing their small group conversations or questions that they say, hey, Alexa, what is, you know, so-and-so, uh, or, or how do I think about this, or where do I get information on why, um, and, and so forth, was sort of his environment uh, of thinking about it. And I know for a fact uh, at Entangled Solutions, where, as you know, I spend some time as a consultant, we work with Sony, and they've been thinking very actively about the active classroom of the future and developing some of these listening technologies as well. So that's certainly one conception of what this can look like. I confess that as I wrote my way through it, what I've become uh, more persuaded by is that we're essentially in, in, in the American schools moving closer and closer to a one-to-one -one environment every single day. I think it's something like two students for every device right now in American schools, uh, and it won't be long till these devices are so affordable and, and likely mobile uh, that it, it'll just be very accessible to all students. And all of us on our mobile devices today carry around, for the most part, these voice-activated assistants, whether it's Google Assistant or Siri. Uh, I suppose if you have a, a Kindle Fire, you have access to Alexa uh, and so forth. And so my take is that it's much more likely that everyone's going to have their own personal devices with a voice-activated assistant as part of it, which will give you the option, right, to use this sort of natural language uh, conversation to, to engage with the computer as opposed to just uh, typing or trying to figure out the right search query uh, in Google, if you will. Well, that's the part of this that remains a bit unclear to me is the relative advantage of any of relying on voice rather than typing or text. Uh, you know, you could implement some sort of responsive artificial intelligence-driven educational service or support entirely through text. What's the rationale for thinking about voice as a distinctive element. Yeah, it's a good point. I pushed Ken on this as well, because I, I had the same question as you, Marty. Uh, and I think there's two answers. One, for special needs students for whom uh, typing or, or, or uh, reading dyslexia, et cetera, is a major concern, this could be a groundbreaking thing. So it could be for a certain percentage of students 
the voice activation is actually just a much better way for them to be learning material, even as they're developing uh, right, their literacy skills and overcoming some of their dyslexic uh, struggles, just to, as an example. The, the second one, uh, which Ken pushed on, was that actually, if, if you're in the middle of stream of, uh, of consciousness or flow, if you will, of working on a, an essay or something like that, the mental acuity it takes to stop what you're doing, move over to uh, a, a different search engine, if you will, and type in something, uh, actually stops your flow of learning, and, or, or excuse me, your, your flow of working. And it would be much easier just to say while you're continuing to type your sentence, hey, Alexa, footnote for me, you know, X, Y, and Z for me to come back to in a couple minutes, right? And, and then you keep typing the, the paragraph, say, that you're working on. Um, may, may, maybe not the best example. His example was that uh, it would have been a... It, 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 voice uh, dictation made writing his uh, doctoral uh, dissertation a lot simpler than sitting in a typewriter, um, which just for him, uh, his fingers couldn't kept, keep up with his ideas. And when he could just say the whole thing out loud, he could then go back to it and type it and clean it up uh, structurally. Uh, but then voice has certain advantages because it's more of a natural medium for us to communicate than is writing, which is, as we know, much more of a learned uh, uh, skill and knowledge. Now, one of the concerns that I imagine some people would have in listening to this conversation and thinking about the implications of this technology is uh, privacy. And again, mm -hmm. this may not be unique to voice activation technology as opposed to other technologies that are really driven by an effort to try and recognize ind individual students' learning needs and respond to them. Uh, to what extent will that ultimately prove a barrier to innovation in this space? I think it'll be significant. Uh, and, and part of the reason is just reflecting on my own experience. You know, we have one of these devices, an Echo, uh, in, in our household now, and it occurred to me that I've essentially installed a wiretap right into our kitchen uh, and was wondering why I did that afterwards. Um, and, and so we leave it unplugged a fair amount now. Uh, but, I, I, you know, more seriously, I think, there are going to be concerns on two dimensions. One, there'll be questions with the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, COPA, uh, and, and restrictions that say children under 13 uh, should not have access to their own uh, Facebook, email, et cetera, accounts. Uh, and so as you start to get into the domain of a device being able to recognize your individual voice potentially and all the characteristics about you uh, accordingly, who owns that data, how it's protected and so forth, I think will be significant. And then the other one, of course, is the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act, or, or FERPA, and making sure that these devices are compliant with that such that the district uh, owns the data um, and, and I think will lead to questions around uh, what sort of big data analysis or artificial intelligence techniques are you even allowed to do with this information? I, I think it'll I, I think it'll be a significant thing that we'll we'll see play up in it uh, in, in in the uh, months and years ahead as this develops. The, the only pause I'll say on this is, and, and who knows how scientific this is, but you know I have a email that goes out to about uh, fifteen thousand or so. Uh, people once a month or so, and I asked them the question, how, how do you think about it? And I, and I gave choices of, you know, this is creepy, it raises private concern, privacy concerns, it'll be super helpful to students and teachers, et cetera. I expected a huge number on uh, this is creepy, 
um, it raises privacy concerns. But actually, it was the second lowest uh, response uh, of, of anything that of, of the choices that I gave it at about 10 percent, whereas the highest was, uh, you know, 27 percent for it's it's another tool, not a game changer, but but important to have in the classroom. So. It could be the case that a vocal minority right here really raises the ire uh, around this and, and forestalls the technology, or it could be that it's more of a speed bump uh, as opposed to a, a game, game, game stopper. And what's the time frame within which you expect us to learn how this plays out in terms of privacy concerns and also in terms of educational potential? Are we talking about something that we're going to start seeing in classrooms while our children are in school, or... Are we really a generation out still? Yeah, I think we're going to start seeing it in the next couple of years. I, I think you're going to see pilots uh, in the next 12 to 18 months start to take place in classrooms with these technologies. And I think uh, we'll start to see attempts anyway at more widespread adoption, uh, you know, maybe three years out or so. The other place to watch will be higher education, uh, where there's perhaps potentially, I should say, fewer privacy concerns because these students will be agents uh, capable of, you know, making some of these decisions around privacy and so forth. We might see the application of some of these voice-activated designs uh, much earlier, I would think, in the higher education uh, in an environment, really in, a, in an effort for colleges and universities uh, to turn the physical classroom into a data-rich environment and not just leave that to the uh, emergence of online learning. Well, that's a more rapid time frame than I had expected, and maybe if we do see movement that soon, we can have you back to weigh in on how things are going. I would welcome it. I think we both remain skeptics, but intrigued and, and curious to follow along. My guest today has been Michael Horn, Distinguished Fellow at the Clayton Christensen Institute for Disruptive Innovations and Executive Editor at Education Next. You can find his column, Hey Alexa, Can You Help Kids Learn More?, in the spring 2018 issue of the journal and online now at educationnext.org. Michael, thanks for being part of the podcast. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the EdNext podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or another platform so that you don't miss an episode. And while you're at it, be sure to check out our archives, where you can find each of the more than 100 episodes we've recorded since 2015. Talk to you next week.